Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 765 with Daniel Coyle. Daniel is a legend when it comes to talking culture, and now he zooms in on some super specific, simple, highly effective actions that just about any team can take to have a more cohesive, positive culture. Good stuff. So you'll learn one, four simple actions that establish deep connection, two, the top thing that builds trust, and three, how to craft a mantra that truly resonates. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to bits that we mentioned here, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP765. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the full text transcripts, every episode tagged by the topic and competency covered, and the gold nugget email summaries. We got a lot of goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com. Pay us a visit. And here's some good stuff about Daniel. Daniel Coyle is the New York Times bestselling author of The Culture Code, which was named Best Business Book of the Year by Bloomberg, BookPal, and Business Insider. Coyle has served as an advisor to many high-performing organizations, including the Navy SEALs, Microsoft, Google, and the Cleveland Guardians. His other books include The Talent Code, The Secret Race, The Little Book of Talent, and Hardball, A Season in the Projects, which was made into a movie starring Keanu Reeves. Coyle was raised in Anchorage, Alaska, and now lives in Cleveland Heights, Ohio during the school year and in Homer, Alaska during the summer with his wife, Jenny, and their four children. Big thanks to Dan for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Daniel. Dan, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me, Pete. I'm excited to be here. Oh, me too. I'm excited to talk about culture. And you've spent so many years learning, researching, studying, interviewing on this subject. I'd love to hear, has there been a particularly surprising or weird or or counterintuitive discovery you've made about culture in all your years of researching? I'm going to say yes to that. And I'm going to say that it is mostly that I think going into it, I, like a lot of other people, thought that great high-performing cultures were these happy places that existed on a higher plane where every idea was a great idea and there was tons of agreement and laughter and that there were kind of these magical places that if you got to Pixar or if you got to Navy SEAL Team 6 or if you got to San Antonio Spurs or IDEO, life would change and things would be better and magical. And what I found is that that is deeply not true. You know, I've spent now the last about seven years visiting the top performing cultures on the planet. And what you find there is this real different kind of fun that they're having. It's the fun 
of exploring tensions together. It's not filled with like ping pong and goofiness. There, there is some of that. It's the love of solving hard problems with people you admire. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a really unique thing that great cultures create, that you're, you're connected, you're being open and transparent and vulnerable and bringing your whole self there, and you're moving in some interesting direction around some hard obstacles. And that is like this addictive thing. And I, that really caught me by surprise because I think when we think about the Pixars and we think about, oh, our dream jobs and our dream cultures, we kind of think that we're going to leave the sweat behind. And in fact, we're going to find a lot more joy and more sweat and more connection and, and more meaning, I think, in uh, being part of a great culture. So I think their orientation toward tension is different than what what people think it is. And that those tensions end up, I think, powering and engaging people in these deep ways that maybe in, in other cultures you don't find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool in terms of, I'm thinking at Navy SEALs, there's plenty of time that sucks <laughs> yeah. in terms of intense physical training, cold water, etc. And yet the fun they're having is, is present, but it's not cupcakes and puppies and Netflix type fun. Yes. Yeah. There's this, this type one and type two fun. Type one fun is like enjoyment. It's, it's ping pong tables. It's that stuff. Type two fun is the, is, is doing hard stuff. And, and I think the fun part of cultures and if people, if your listeners like, I don't know, it's kind of useful to think about the most cohesive teams you've ever been a part of. And like, what did that feel like? What, what was the thing? And it, it wasn't all like laughter. It was a lot, also a lot of vulnerability. It was also a lot of hard stuff. And so I think that's the part about culture that, that really resonated with me as I, as I looked at these places, that they're, they're, they're mastering this skill set. And I think it is part of being awesome at your job, to coin a phrase, to actually have that ability to like, oh, let's identify what the hard thing is in this room, and then let's circle up around it and figure it out together. And, and that is a set of subtle skills that's, that's just beneath the surface, those skills of like, how do I build that connection with that person next to me? How do I talk about the problem in a way that, that doesn't make it seem threatening or overwhelming? How do I go back to it day after day and mark the progress that we're making? It's these skills that, that go beyond just what you do at your job or your job description. These are like relational skills, communication skills. And those are the skills that you see in these places. Like kept meeting leaders and people that worked there that, that had that skill set. And that's, that's kind of what led me to write the two books. First, The Culture Code, which came out a few years ago, and now The Culture Playbook, which tries to bring some of those skills and some of those actions from underneath to bring them up to the surface so we can look at them and learn from them. Yeah. Well, well so let's, let's talk about that specifically, the book, The Culture Playbook. What's the big idea here in, in contrast with The Culture Code? Yeah, The Culture Code's a book about theory and story. And, and I went around visiting these, these cultures, and it ranged from the ones that we've mentioned already to like the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and a Serbian gang of jewel thieves who were, had this really incredible culture. These are very high-performing places. And in the time since I've written the book, the landscape has changed in some really interesting ways. The idea of building a team is different in the age post-COVID of hybrid work, where a lot of people are working by themselves and communicating through these crazy windows that we're using now. And this idea of how do we tap into the, the core elements of what it takes to bring a human group together and do it in this new landscape, mm-hmm. this landscape where we've got more going on, changing faster. And what I found in the book is that the fundamentals still don't change. These 60 actions that I talk about are fundamentally built to create 
you know, there's, there's three things that groups do. There's three things that cultures do. They connect, they create trust so they can work together and they move in a direction. You know, that's what culture is. It's, it's, it's building relationships so you can solve problems together. And the book, which has sort of these three sections on these three different skill sets. First, you know, how do I build that connection, right? How do I do that? And secondly, how do I create shared vulnerability and trust where I'm going to let go of the trapeze and I know that you're going to catch me at the other end? And finally, how do we handle direction? How do we move toward a true north, establish that and keep moving toward it? And that's what this book's all about. It's just from one to 60 actions, about 20 in each category. And they're sort of stolen from these groups, uh, groups that I observed, groups that I saw them do it. And a lot of these things, they seem like magic, but they're not magic. They are behaviors, they are signals, they are communications that can be learned and practiced. Okay, well, I loved your subtitle, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. We love highly effective actions here. And so we've got them in three categories about connecting and creating trust and moving in a direction. Could you share a couple of these really potent actions within each category that make a world of difference. Ideally, ones that don't take a ton of time, energy, money, but do produce a boatload of, of connection, of trust, of movement. Yeah, you bet. You bet. I guess one that comes to mind right off is one that was taught to me by a Navy SEAL commander. He said, your face is like a door. It can be open or it can be closed. And we know what closed looks like. You're focused, your, your eyes or your brows are down, you're intently focused on what's in front of you. Or it can be open. And, and this tip is keep an open face. It refers to the muscle above your eyebrows, actually. It's, it's called your, I think it's a zygomatous muscle. And it is one that is only for social signaling. We only use it to signal interest, energy, engagement, uh, enthusiasm. And especially when we're communicating remotely, what your face is doing is the loudest signal that you are sending. So if you're in any kind of situation like that, that idea to keep an open face is, is just a really, really simple one. Okay. Well, well I want to dig all over this. So it's the space, it's our eyebrows. It's a zygo something in this muscle. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so what does open forehead eyebrows look like versus eyebrows up? up. You know, okay. Eyebrows up, eyes wide open. That's interesting, Dan. It is interesting. Oh. Tell me about that. <laughs> Think of the faces of the leaders you most admire. Think mm -hmm. of the faces of the people who are the best communicators. Were their faces open or were they closed? And the idea that this is this, this ancient signal that we are really, you know, there's no other use for this muscle except for social signaling. So to not use it is, a, is sort of a waste. And I think a lot of us, when we're sitting in front of our computers remotely, sometimes forget to do that. Yeah. Well, and when you're tired, like that you're natural, if you're tired, you're naturally, you know, you might slouch a little. And then your eyebrows, forehead, <laughs> they also slouch a little. Like, yeah, Dan, just trying to get through the day. <laughs> exactly. And if I don't stop and think like, oh, I would like to signal to Dan that I care what he has to say. And so, you know, you think, okay, smile, nod, eye contact. Yep. But uh, zeroing in on this completely different part of the face. Yeah. That's handy. It is kind of handy. It is kind of handy. Mm -hmm. Another one I would, I would throw out there is the two-line email. This is, this is an idea from Laszlo Bach, who headed up Humu, which is a, a, an HR company. And the idea is you send an email to the people you work with. And it says, hey, I'm trying to get better. Tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you'd like me to stop doing. Mm -hmm. It's a short email. It's a very short email, but it's a very big signal, which is, I trust you. I'm connected with you. I'd like you to give me some feedback, not 10 pieces of feedback, but just two. One thing I should keep doing, one thing I should stop doing. 
Really, really simple. And the third one I would say, and kind of in the connection bucket, is make a habit of overthanking people. Thanks are not just transactional, they're signals of a deeper relationship. At the end of every basketball season, San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich, who's the winningest coach in NBA history, he's had that team at the top for a long time. I think they've won the championship four or five times. He goes to every player that he coaches and he says these words. He says, thank you for allowing me to coach you. He doesn't have to do that, right? He's paid amply. The player is paid amply, but it's not about the pay. It's not about the transaction. It is about the relationship and finding ways to connect the dots. And, and when something good happens, trace it back to the chain of people who helped make it happen. I was at a school recently and the eighth grade math teacher sent out a note to the seventh grade math teacher, the sixth grade math teacher, and the fifth grade math teacher. And the note said, hey, I just want to let you know our kids scored 85s on their year-long test, which is a, a up for the last uh, three years in a row. And it's because of your work that they're scoring so well. I'm the eighth grade teacher. I'm the person who gives them that test. But it's because of your work in the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. Short email. It takes five seconds to write. It's incredibly powerful to make those connections really, really visible and create that connection. That's great. So just sort of a habit of, ooh, good result. (laughs) Good result likely means there's at least one person to be thanked. Yep. And so go ahead and get in that groove uh, repeatedly. Completely. Nifty. Okay. And are there best, when it comes to thanking, is it like, seems like any mode, any format, handwritten, gift, email, in person? Yeah. As long as it's authentic. I mean, stuff and in person ends up working better. There was a study about requests, actually, Pete, that's where they gave requests digitally and they, they also made requests in person. And they found that the requests in person were responded to 22 times more frequently. 22 times. Times. Not 22%. No. Times. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So we're just built to respond to that. So if it's a question of saying uh, thanks in person or just sending a note, say it in person. It Mm -hmm. means more. And likewise, when it comes to giving negative feedback, like turning something down, there are some great cultures that have rules that say that that has to be done in person too. Because... To get an email, like if you're getting an expense account or something rejected, to get an email that it's rejected can create some bad feelings, some some vagueness, some unclearness of why that was rejected. But doing it in person provides so much more context and information. So that's why cultures have rules that say, hey, if you're going to provide some negative, negative feedback, you've got to do that in person. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay. Well, Dan, you really delivered there. Those are our high ROI goodies that are quick and easy when it comes to connecting. How about for, we do the exact same thing for creating trust. Yeah, why not? When it comes to trust, this is, this is kind of the interesting thing that came as a surprise to me and I think comes as a surprise to a lot of people. We're normally taught that vulnerability and trust are related as follows. We're normally taught that you have to like build up some trust before you can be vulnerable, right? And actually, we've got it exactly backwards. Moments of vulnerability, when they're shared, are what create trust. And so what great cultures have and what skill we can steal from them is the idea of a vulnerability loop. When you have two people who are being vulnerable together, it creates connection and trust and cohesion in a way that nothing else does. In fact, think about the best friends in your life. 
are they the people you've been uh, the most vulnerable with or the least vulnerable with? I'm, I'm going to guess it's the most. Mm-hmm. The same principle works at, at work. And so some of the things that are really simple to do to create that vulnerability, what you find in good cultures and in good groups, they treat vulnerability as kind of like a, like a calisthenic. Like it, it hurts, but it makes you stronger. And a couple ways to do that. Number one is to, is to make a habit of doing an AAR. An AAR is an after-action review. This is an, a concept from the military. And the way it works is, in the military, it works like this. You finish the mission, and you come back, and the first thing you do before you do anything, before you take a nap, before you eat, is you circle up, and you talk about three things. What went well? What didn't go well? And what are we going to do differently next time? Mm-hmm. It's a really simple conversation. It's also a really hard conversation. When you've, when you've done something really difficult with a group and you got to come back and say, hey, I think I screwed that up. Or, hey, I think we could be a lot better at this. It takes guts. And, but that's why it's powerful because it brings people together in an atmosphere of vulnerability, openness, transparency. And the experience of going through that brings you closer. Dave Cooper, who commanded the Navy SEALs who got bin Laden, says the most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Mm-hmm. Because it gives permission for everyone in the group to absolutely be open about that. So that's the first one, to build an yeah. AAR, to do AARs regularly, make it a habit. Well, when it comes to vulnerability, I could see that the after action review is a great habit, and that's vulnerable right there. I screwed it up. Now, I imagine, though, when it comes to vulnerability, I I think that there are different flavors, Mm. categories, buckets, if you will. And so, so one, an admission of error is one. If the word vulnerability feels a little bit vague or fuzzy for people, can you give us a few more examples? I love you bringing that up. I would put a few categories out there. The most powerful one is vulnerability around learning, Okay, where you say, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Teach me that. And you see that being incredibly effective because everybody likes to teach things, right? When there's somebody next to you who can do something better than you, you say, hey, could you teach me how to do that? That is a really powerful and underused moment. There's total emotional vulnerability where you're, where you're giving over, you're telling someone how you really feel about something. That can be a little less useful in a work context. And finally, there's a third category, which is fake vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And you actually see this sometimes among leaders or people who are manipulating people. I recently was at a conference where somebody told me about a media consultant who was trying to train CEOs to cry, like <laughs> on cue, which mm-hmm. sounds completely insane. Uh, he swore to me that it was true. And part of me believes it because vulnerability is such a powerful emotion. But I would say for creating good culture in the, in the 15 feet around you in the office or in the 15 <laughs> video calls around you, vulnerability around learning is the most powerful because it creates a conversation. It creates a relationship. It creates a path. It creates, like all learning, is, the, is a cycle of experience and reflection. And so it gets you into that cycle in a good way. And would we put a name for the category of a vulnerability? Like if I were just to share... I don't know, like a personal struggle, like my marriage is struggling or my child is, is being held back or my mom or dad is, is dying. That certainly feels vulnerable. It does. Yeah. Do a name for that category in the research or the literature? Yeah, I'd call that the heavy, deep and real category. I mean, yeah. the, the personal category that has a place too in all of this, especially as we sort of bring our whole selves to work. And, and especially in the early parts of a relationship, that kind of openness when we can sort of, especially in an era where we're increasingly trying to create more belonging for 
traditionally marginalized communities in the workplace, those moments can be really, really powerful. And it's the kind of thing where you can't force them to happen. Yeah. Now everyone will share something that they are profoundly struggling with and worried about. (laughs) You start, Dan. (laughs) Right. You go. Right. But I've seen some cool exercises. The one that I, I sort of admire the most was one that came out of the sports world. It's called the 4-H exercise. It's where people get together and for a few minutes talk about the 4-Hs. The 4-Hs are their heroes, their heartbreak, their history, and their hopes. So you give them a chance to reflect individually, and then everybody comes together and, and talks about it. And you sort of get a sense of the whole person. You know, oh, their grandparents moved here from Korea, and, and you get to learn about their favorite food growing up. And it just, it's just a nice shortcut to connecting to the person. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right. So sharing vulnerability. Anything else you want to talk about when it comes to creating trust? Yeah, there's one more, I think. It's one that, again, I I realized a little bit later, but there's a magical phrase that happens in good cultures that you hear a lot. And and I think it's a subtle skill. It's about listening. But that phrase is, tell me more. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really powerful phrase. And you use it when someone asks you a question. The trick when somebody asks us a question, especially when we're new in our job and we're trying to be really good at it, is when someone asks us a question, we want to answer. We want to like provide value, right? We want to say, hey, I got it right here. I'm really smart. And this is what worked for me that time. And when in fact, if you're, if you're really looking to understand what's going on, you need to say, tell me more. It's the, the most powerful phrases in the world. When you have problems like that get brought to you are often like the proverbial iceberg. You see the surface, but it's much deeper underneath. So by saying, tell me more, you can say, what other context do you see this in? What did you try already? Who else knows about this? How else can we apply this? Give me more. Let's, there's a, a woman named Roshi Gavechi who's a, a, the best listener I ever met. Like You meet people who are super good listeners. She, is, it, she works for IDEO, which is a design firm, and she is their person to kind of unlock teams. That's kind of what she does. When teams are stuck, she goes and unlocks and unleashes them. And she's extraordinary because when you come to her with a question, she will say, Tell me more about that. And she has a beautiful phrase called surfacing, where you're, you're trying to surface the problem so that you can stand around it together and work on it together. You're not the solver here. Nobody is. These problems are hard. It requires time. Bringing it to the surface together by saying, tell me more. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay. Now, when it comes to movement, what are some of the key actions you recommend there? Well, every group is moving toward the true north. You're trying to define that true north. And we typically think that, like, well, great cultures just have their purpose in their heart or in their gut. They just know what it is. But actually, when you go to really great cultures, and some of your listeners will know this, you end up hearing them talk about their purpose all the time. They talk about it in ways that are really, sometimes really corny. You know, they have all these mantras and slogans. And When you go to the Navy SEALs, they keep talking about we're the quiet professionals. The only easy day was yesterday. When you go to Zappos, they talk of all their phrases. When you go to Pixar, they have all their phrases. And probably the person who's best at at phrases that I encountered was a restaurant restaurant owner. His name is Danny Meyer. And he came up with all of these phrases. We we, we have athletic hospitality and and we, we love problems and mistakes are waves and servers are surfers. And Danny and I were having breakfast and some a waiter dropped a tray of glasses and Danny stopped talking to me and started looking over in the corner and I said what are you looking for and he said one of two things is going to happen either they're going to come together clean up this mess and the energy level in the restaurant is going to go up and I'll know that this is a good culture or 
there are going to be some hint of blame and anger, resentment, and the energy level is going to drop. Mm. And yeah. that is when those mantras and those corny phrases started to make sense to me. Having these simple little algorithms, little mantras that you say, sort of direct your emotions and your attention in the right way, athletic hospitality, loving problems, mistakes are waves, servers are surfers, all that stuff sort of nudges you the right way. So that's one sort of tip is create a mantra map, like figure out what the main problems in your environment are, figure out what the solution is, what you want to do, and create some words that help guide you there. And it's, it can be a cool thing to co-create as a team. What's fun about that is, and they can stick with you for years. I think it back to my days at Bain, like, hey, one team attitude. It's like, yeah, we never blame each other. Just we don't like, particularly for the client. Like, oh, Dan yes. said something really boneheaded. You have to forgive him. He's new. Yes. Like this just doesn't happen or an openness, to the 1% possibility that you are wrong, you're mistaken, you know, and yep. that someone else has, has something that you should take in. And boy, geez, years later, that sticks with me. I think what's tricky there, Dan, is that I think sometimes organizations can put the cart before the horse on this one. Yep. Like they create the mantras, but they have no bearing in reality. Yes. And if that's more frustrating, I, I'm thinking... Oh, it could be a nightmare. At least when I was at Kmart, I'm just going to name names. This is a long time ago. Maybe Kmart's better now. <laughs> My first real job, like not delivering newspapers or something, was working at Kmart. They had these mantras. I'd help customers rule, teams work, change strengthens, performance. Wow. I remember them again years later. And then I was like, but wait a minute. I don't see that. If you seem upset with me that I gave this person a discount on the Mountain Dew, even though the training video said that we can do that because I have the power to please, Dan, <laughs> by enabling the substitutions, like 212s for the 24 price, you got it. But so I, that was very frustrating. Like, oh, this is just like something that I don't know. The HR team came up with on a retreat somewhere. That's the distinction. That's the distinction, right? Yeah. When the HR team, as opposed to when the people on the floor create it themselves. And, and that co-creation is the key part of that. This is not something that's handed down. And people tend to think mission and purpose statements are kind of generated by some godlike Moses who carves them into granite and hands them down to the people. That's not how the best ones work. The best ones are kind of natural and they come out of the environment. And, and having some time where you get together with your group and say, okay, what, what do we want our mantras to be? Screw the company. What do we want our mantras to be? If we're going to work together here, we need to have a clear sense of what matters, what doesn't, what behaviors are, are not acceptable. Danny Meyer used to talk about skunking, which is when an employee would get irritated or a waiter would get irritated and you could just kind of tell, right? They're just sort of emitting this odor that mm -hmm. everyone is revolted by. They just made up that word, but it really works in that environment because you're like, dude, you're skunking. You got to quit skunking or whatever, you know, you use it naturally. So that concept, and it's one of those ideas that I think can be powerful in everyday life as we seek to build our skills or as we seek to build better habits. Words and mantras are incredibly powerful. Okay, so mantras, knowing and creating and saying the phrases, what else? I think there's a, a little exercise that I, I think is one of my favorite ones to do for any group to do that is really powerful. It's called a best barrier workshop. It's when you get together with your team and you just two steps. Step one, define exactly what you look like at your best, the team. Like if a documentary film crew flew in and filmed you at your best, what behaviors would they see? Name them, like write them down. Second step, what barriers stop that from happening every day? Name those barriers. Name them. And then what you're doing 
in those two steps is you're building the architecture of a mantra because you are defining where you want to go and who you want to be, and you're defining what stops you. So figuring out, okay, why don't we perform at our best? Is it time? Do we not give each other enough time? Are we too separate all the time? Are we not in sync? Are we not connected enough? Figure out what those barriers are and name them. So I would say a best barrier workshop is a pretty good thing to try. Uh That's good. Anything else you want to talk about with movement? I think there's an overall, stories are the most powerful drug on the planet. A story. Like you, you remember your your life uh, at Bain. You remember your life at Kmart. We all remember our work lives and our lives in general through stories. And we tend to, tend to treat stories as something that's kind of happenstance, right? Like they just sort of appear like flowers before us and we pick some of them and we ignore some of them. I think as you move through your career and as you seek to understand both the culture you're in and also the cultures where you want to go, stories are really powerful for a couple reasons. The first is that they're like the best way to capture the purpose of a culture and the best behavior that we can be. One of the coolest questions you can ask anybody about our culture is, tell me a story about your group, about something your group does that no other group does. Mm -hmm. It's a good question to ask if you're interviewing for a new job. Like, tell me a story about your group that you would tell your best friend. What gets rewarded around there is a good question to ask. And all of these kind of get at like the deeper narrative and purpose of, of groups in a way that just simple data can't. So really appreciating stories as a resource, both for you and your present culture, but also as a way to understand the places in which you'll work in the future. Mm-hmm. And I also want to hear you, I dig it, so, so great actions associated with connecting and creating trust and, and moving. And when we talk about stories, I'd love to hear some stories associated with teams that had a culture that was, I don't know, lame to mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> That's all big upgrade to yep. transformational. And you've got a particular process you call a team tune-up. Yeah. So maybe that might be a little bit more micro to the, the macro story, but I just want to put those two bits out there and, and get some stories. No, it's good. No, my favorite story about a team turnaround would be from a Navy ship, actually, called the USS Benfold. The commander was a man named Mike Abershoff. The Benfold was the worst performing ship in the Navy. When he got there, his first action was to meet with every crew member for about 10 or 15 minutes. And he would ask them, like the two-line email, what's something we should keep doing? What's something we should stop doing? And whenever anyone had an idea that they could immediately implement, like we should eat at 1130, not at 12, he would grab the intercom and announce the change immediately (laughs) over the boat. Like we eat, now we eat at 1130. Boom. That action, and it took him like three weeks to do these interviews, right? Huge investment of time, very inefficient. I'm sure he had a million more important things to do. But when you're building relationships, it is an incredibly efficient use of time. It's incredibly smart because he's doing the thing that good cultures do, which is you got to build the safety. And safety, there's a lot of talk in the world now about psychological safety, and that's all well and good, and it's true. But you have to remember that the point of safety is voice. The point of safety is freedom. The point of safety is that those people can hear their suggestion amplified for the whole crew. Flash forward three years, and the Benfold is the best performing ship in the Navy. And it's not an accident, because Mike Abershoff, and he wrote a wonderful book about this called It's Your Ship, and it's worth reading. 
But the reason that it worked wasn't magic. It looks like magic, but it's not magic. It's he's really, really good at these cultural skills that say, hey, I'm going to give you a voice here and let's see how far we can take it. We want to build a group brain. It's not about one person being smart. It's about all of us being smart. Well, that's really fun, as I imagine, sitting in one of those conversations and saying, hey, we should eat <laughs> we should eat lunch at this time. And then just immediately that being dictate, dictate like Power. So the fiat, like now <laughs> this is so, like that feel awesome. And uh, the flip side is that I, I can sort of imagine that in, in deciding quickly, I imagine a couple of them had to be, probably had to be backtracked. Like, you know, actually- uh, Never mind. Actually, Captain, you see with the meal prep times or established for these key considerations and that we can with the earlier time that kind of messes up all these other things and you're like oh i didn't i didn't realize that because this was my sixth conversation <laughs> with, with teammates so uh, but i guess you just backtrack it and really it's no harm done in fact the dude who told you about the shifting the lunchtime probably thinks it's pretty cool that at least a few days we were we tried it his way that's exactly right and that's the trade-off that i think is easy to overlook We all go through life and we've got these two categories of things in front of us. We've got the stuff we got to do, right? There's a big pile of that. And then we got the people who are around us. And it is always tempting as we move through the day, as we move through our mornings and our afternoons to focus on the things because they're vivid. They're they're right in front of us. There's a to-do list and we want to knock things off that. And the thing that I saw in in people who were skilled at this cultural skill set is they had the ability to, as, as Captain Abershoff did, push off that to-do list and focus on the person in front of them and create that relationship and build that safety and that trust and that direction together. And then, guess what? The to-do list gets done so much faster because you have built that group brain and mm-hmm. you've built that connection and you can go much faster together. That's cool. And so if listeners find themselves in a team that they would like tuned up, How do we execute a team tune-up? Yeah, that's funny. It's sort of in the same dynamic. And this is an idea from IDEO, this incredible design firm. Like a lot of companies, they have teams doing projects, right? But the smart thing that IDEO does is they realize that the project is a journey. The project itself is a journey. And you can't just focus on the project. You actually have to turn your focus and ask, how's the team doing? Like, how are we doing on this project? So they're sort of like a race car driver, right? The project is the race car going around the track. And, and three times they pull in and have a tune-up. Uh, how's our engine doing? And they, they're very simple meetings. There's a pre-flight, a mid-flight, and a post-flight. And they ask really simple questions like pre-flight. What are you most excited about learning on this project? Like, we're all going to go and do this together. What are you most excited about learning? What are you dreading the most? How do you like to work? you like getting a lot of creative work done in the morning? Like, let's figure out how we're going to work together. Mid-flight, how's it going? Like, are we, are we going the direction we thought we were going? Are we all working together well? What relationships are strongest? What aren't strongest? Post-flight, what did we learn here? What are we taking forward into our other projects? What relationships got stronger? So these, these moments, and they're, they're really simple, reflective, a couple of hours set aside to do the most crucial work of saying, how are we doing? Because the work is one thing, but this team is something that matters more. And smart groups take the time to put their attention and their effort into improving the internal functioning of the team. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Well, Dan, I'm curious. So we have a lot of great practices that we've discussed. What are some things that 
are, are common mistakes that we should be on the lookout for? Maybe things that we don't even realize we're doing that are harmful to culture that we should cut out. Somebody once said about a, a mule, well, what's the saying about a mule and a carpenter in a barn? It said, any mule can kick down a barn, but it takes a real master carpenter to build a good one. And so this, likewise with culture, there are a million ways to destroy culture. There are a million. Some of the most, most common ones are around integrity, but there's some more less common ones, which is just the speed of, of life, right? We all live with the disease of more, where our plates get continually loaded with more and more and more. And if we don't stop to subtract things from our plate and we don't stop to move things away and get rid of things and pare things down, sometimes the relationships can really suffer. The thing to remember, though, is that culture is never fixed. It's never done. You never get to a spot and say, our culture is great. I studied for my book, Culture Code, I studied several cultures, including Pixar and the Navy SEALs, both of whom have had significant cultural challenges in recent years with the Me Too movement, with some, some bad behavior in the SEALs. So it's not to say their cultures are ruined. Because they're strong cultures, they're trying to find a way back and trying to figure out why this happened and trying to work together to make it better. But culture is a living thing. It's a living exchange of signals and behaviors. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. And so this idea, I think, the thing that kills cultures often is success, actually, in a weird way, because it makes people complacent. It makes people not give uh, attention to the relationships that, that drive good culture. And the other thing that creates great culture is a crisis. When you go back in time and scroll back to, why did Pixar get to be so good? Why did the Navy SEALs get to be so good? Why did IDEO get to be so good? You will find a crisis often. And in that crisis, they were very vulnerable. They bonded and they came up with new ways of doing things. And so I guess all of which is to add up to say, your culture is never done. Your culture is never done. And this, this skill set that you have as you take these actions and, and try to build it around you, it's always happening, always around you. And so one of the most powerful things is to just tune into these, these exchanges and these actions that are constantly moving the strength of your culture up or down. All right. Well, Dan, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah, I guess there's some, the culture's changed a lot. And I guess I'd want to say a couple words about this moment we're living through as people are adapting to hybrid work. And I think there's, there's been a shift in culture and I've sort of noticed three really big themes. And I'll just mention them really quickly. I mean, theme one is, is stop thinking like a leader and start thinking like a teammate. Strong cultures now to learn and to grow and to navigate change you know, no one has the answers. This idea of leadership that we're taught and, and is in our culture, that leaders always will know what to do and that there's sort of this authority that they have that is unlike others, that's, that's baloney. Great leaders are great teammates and, and thinking more like a teammate. Another theme I've seen is stop focusing on knowing and start focusing on learning. Don't be knowing at all, be learning at all. And then the third is really the power of the pause. With the speed of change, it is absolutely necessary. And the way in which we're working is changing where we're communicating across time and space in different ways. Being intentional and having situational awareness is huge. And so people who are good at that are really good at pausing. The pausing, I think of pausing as the new productivity. Like if you just race through your day knocking stuff off, you are never going to clear your decks and your, your decks will only get fuller and fuller and fuller. 
to stop and be very considerate about what you're doing, to make time for reflection in your day, both as an individual and as a group, is one of the more powerful things a group can do. Okay. Now, if you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring. One of my favorite quotes is a very long quote from Roosevelt. It's not the critic that counts. It's the person in the arena. It's a good one. Look it up. But it's, uh, I, I think it's, uh, that one always, always sticks with me as being the difference between jumping into things and, and sitting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? The Robber's Cave Experiment. The Robber's Cave Experiment. They had a, a group. So it was early on. They could never do this today. But they took a group of young, young kids and created two tribes. It was, it was around the time of Lord of the Flies and had these extraordinary like changing encounters between each of these tribes that just really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? Favorite book is The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Favorite tool? I'm going to point right at I just bought a new pack of these today. Oh, sure. Very inexpensive, Bic Pen, now with 45% smoother glide, I am told, on the packaging. Is it true in your experience? Yeah, it, it is. I just used okay. it, and it was at least 45% smoother. <laughs> and a favorite habit? Exercise, actually. That, that's just something that changes your whole state, changes your whole day. like to get on my bike. Is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They retweet you often? I think it's probably this idea of a vulnerability loop. This idea that vulnerability and trust, that we've we've had it backwards, that moments of vulnerability are what create trust. And that that seems to that seems to really echo and resonate with people. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? DanielCoyle.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, you know, I think the challenge would be to carve out time to reflect. There's a piece of advice that somebody gave me a long time ago, which was WSD, write shit down. Mm-hmm. Writing it down makes things real. Writing is thinking. And you can write it on your phone. You can write it on a post-it note. It doesn't matter. But capture stuff. Because, you know, you go through life, you want to learn. You want to get better at things. And Learning is a cycle. You have an experience and then you have to reflect. You have an experience and then you reflect. That is what learning is made of. So I think in modern life, we don't give much time for that reflection piece as we were talking before. And carving out intentional time where you write down, just process what happened will make you see it differently, will let you connect dots. A good journal is like a map. And so it will let you see where you've come and will open up places for you to go in the future. So that would be my my challenge for your group to WSD. All right, Dan, it's been a treat. Thank you. I wish you much luck and fun cultures. Hey, thanks so much. It's been great to be with you. I really love what Dan had to say here about the open door and open face. And I think I've noticed that sometimes my face is closed when it'd be better for the vibe if my face were open. So great stuff from Dan. Hadn't even thought of that before, but it makes a world of difference in how your conversations unfold. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, and the links to items that we mentioned here is at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP765. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.